0: Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani State of Mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of
1: Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever
0: you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER. To try a free month of premium listening, you'll get ad free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's StitcherPremium.com, promo code REMEMBER for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is the seventh episode of our series about stars during times of war or Star Wars. The subject of today's story, like many other women whose experiences during World War II we've previously discussed, Volunteered at the Hollywood Canteen, performed at USO shows and on radio broadcasts designed to boost troop morale, and saw her photographs become popular pinups, offering comfort to boys grasping for a reminder of what they were fighting for back home. But otherwise, her experiences in Hollywood and during the war were completely different than those of those other ladies'. Today, we're going to talk about Lena Horne, the only black actress to be signed to a full studio contract in the 1940s, and the first to be promoted as a glamour girl, ostensibly equal to sex goddesses like Hedy Lamarr and Rita Hayworth. But Lena's experience in Hollywood, more often than not, made her feel separate rather than equal. For much of her life, Lena Horne felt burdened by a responsibility to perform the role of model black person, which often made her the target of the resentment of other black people. Hired by MGM as a sop to the loud protests of the NAACP, Horn was largely kept out of starring roles by her home studio's cowardice. But the war made Horn a major star, almost in spite of MGM's efforts, as within a segregated military, there was a real need for the charms and talents of a woman of color. With all the demands put on Lena Horne, that she represent the entirety of her race without ever coming off as quote-unquote too black, it took Lena a long time to find her own voice. But as we'll see, it was worth the wait. Join us, won't you, as we tell the story of the Battles of Lena Horne. Lena's family on her father's side was the epitome of early 20th century Brooklyn black bourgeoisie. Activists and intellectuals, her grandparents refused to acknowledge their slave ancestry, even though their light skin tone betrayed generations of rape at the hands of masters. The Horns, particularly Lena's grandmother, Cora Calhoun Horn, believed and preached that the way to advance as a person of color was by never making excuses, admitting to struggle or showing weakness, or in fact, betraying emotion of any kind. She had high standards that she expected her offspring to live up to. But Lena's father, Teddy Horn, disappointed his parents on two fronts. By marrying Lena's mother, Edna, a wannabe actress from less sophisticated stock, and by taking what was perceived as the easy professional way out. By becoming a gambler and number runner, but as Lena explained in a radio interview in 1966, her parents didn't have a lot of options.
1: Uh, my father was a Negro man who, who uh, to survive, uh, hustled, uh, and in the sense of hustling and a Negro man, it means that uh, oftentimes if you. Uh, educated and able to get a job the most menial uh, uh, and that was all you had the opportunity to the job you had to hold you didn't want to do that and you didn't want to work for someone who had less talent less brains than you so you risked your life you laid your life down on the line you were a hustler you worked with in many times, criminal attitudes. It took a lot of guts. And on the one hand, you chose that rather than have the man make a slave of you. Who is the man? I knew as soon as I said that, I shouldn't have without explaining it. The man is the employer. And the man who was usually the employer that, uh, offered the Negro man, neither the right to be a hustler or work for him, was usually a white man, a white employer. Mm-hmm. My mother was an actress, a truly dedicated, creative person who had no place to act. <laughs> How dare she? You know, there were three theaters, uh, one in Philadelphia, one in Washington, one in New York, where a Negro actress could act. Otherwise she, you know, kicked around the South, along with every other traveling gypsy, blues singers or otherwise, with no place to work.
0: By the time Lena, who was born in 1917, was a teenager, her father had long ago abandoned his family to marry another woman and move to Seattle. Lena would later say that he took a windfall from the Black Sox baseball scandal and had to skip town. Though Lena's mother eventually remarried, there was no money coming in— So Edna put aside her own dreams of fame and focused on grooming 16-year-old Lena as a showgirl. Lena's first job was at the Cotton Club, the Harlem night spot where an all-white, moneyed audience came to see an all-black floor show. The Cotton Club was a comparatively lucrative gig. Chorus girls earned $25 a week, the equivalent of about $450 today, which was an upper-class income during the Depression. It was considered absolutely the most glamorous place a young black girl could work, even though the working conditions were pretty terrible. Lighter-skinned girls who could pass for white or Latina were always hired over darker-skinned girls, regardless of talent. Dancers worked two to three shows a night, seven days a week, with no time off. The colored talent were not allowed to use the front entrance of the club or the customer restrooms. In fact, the chorus girls didn't have access to toilets on the premises at all, and if they had to go while at work, they went in the backstage sink. The club was run by gangsters, and sometimes to buy off the cops, the dancers would be asked to give select policemen free shows off the clock. Later in life, Lena would speak at length about how she had felt exploited as a cotton club girl. She had resented the gaze of the audience, who she felt only came to ogle black flesh and didn't even consider the performers on stage to be human. But then, like her parents before her, young Lena's options were limited.
1: And that's where I had to work. One uh, had the choice in the old days. Uh, The choice wasn't very wide. You could be a, a hall or a cook. Or uh, you could struggle and be a teacher, and you could do few things. But on the whole, in an urban, s- in New York, a little corrupt, a little cynical, you were more apt to be a whore if you couldn't make it than if you were, you know, young, cute Negro kid, than uh, be a teacher, especially if you hadn't had the education to be the teacher. Or, uh, and especially if your parents had no money to make you anything else. And I, mine had none, so I went into the theater.
0: <laughs> in the spring of 1934, Lena was promoted from Corrine to Showgirl, which meant that instead of busting her ass in the strenuous chorus line dance routines, she got to stroll out on stage in a featured number and sing a short solo, coached by the song's writer, Harold Arlen. This promotion was great for Lena in a lot of ways, but it made her a pariah backstage, where the other girls snarked that Lena had glided up in the Cotton Club ranks on the strength of her looks and not her voice. Lena left the Cotton Club, finally, when she was hired to sing for the touring band conducted by Noble Sissel. As they toured the country in 1936, Sissel was determined to mentor Lena in the arts of countering racist stereotypes. "'You are not a whore,' he told her. "'Don't let them treat you like one.' He worked with her to develop a dignified stage presence and had her learn a sophisticated tap dance number. But the gig was hardly the height of refinement. On tour with Sissel, Lena and the band were often forced to sleep on the tour bus because nowhere else was the all-black band welcomed or safe from racial epithets, or worse. Aware that she wasn't a great singer, Lena worked hard to get better— but she also made the most of the asset which most easily opened doors for her, her beauty. She eagerly posed for pinup photos and eventually lent her beautiful face to a campaign for a skin-lightening product advertised in black newspapers. Lena stayed with Noble Sissel's band until early 1937, when the 18-year-old married Louis Jordan Jones, a minister's son and friend of Lena's father's. Lena then left show business to settle with Louis in Pittsburgh. Lena's momager mother was disappointed by the marriage. She thought her daughter was throwing her career away. The marriage was instantly disappointing for Lena too, who had dutifully saved her virtue, only to find that her husband was brutish in bed and elsewhere. Many years later, she was able to cut him a little bit of slack.
1: The iniquities and the inequalities of being a Negro man out in the street working on his job and what he had to put up with made him, when he came home, a man that demanded prodigious strength. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing that word, but I mean it's almost like Atlas from a Negro woman, because she had to be the buffer and the healer of all those wounds he took outside. And sometimes the Negro woman got tired of being that buffer and being a wife and being tender and being loving and being and taking the beating that Mr. Charlie should have taken and I think that's the cruelest thing I uh, was completely uh, unequipped for it and that was my first marriage and I was a very bad wife because I had run to a marriage to get away from what was the earlier part of my life. Nobody, no, had no one, nothing, hated this exposure of them looking at me this way. Run to him and come to him with no strength at all and wanted it from him. And he had none to give me. And I was a coward. I just crumbled
0: beneath it. By March 1937, Lena was pregnant and thus trapped. She missed performing and sought solace at the movies, going to the cinema at least once a week, maybe more if there was a new film from her favorites, Betty Davis and Charlie Chaplin. And then, shortly after Lena gave birth to her daughter, Gail, out of the blue came a call offering Lena the female lead in a low-budget, all-black musical called The Duke is Tops. Her husband wasn't making enough money to stop Lena from taking the gig. With an infant, they needed the promised $600 salary. So Lena decamped for Los Angeles for the 10-day shoot, leaving husband and daughter back in Pittsburgh. The Duke Is Tops turned out to be a less-than-auspicious debut. The movie was bad, Lena was not great in it, and the producer ran out of money before paying his performers. Lena then refused to appear at the film's Pittsburgh premiere, sending a telegram in her stead that read, Professional appearances should be made on a professional basis. Or, in other words, F you pay me. Both the movie and Lena's refusal to support it were torn apart in many black newspapers. Newspapers in which Lena was already starting to be cast as a diva. Over the next months, Lena found work singing at parties, and she gave birth to a son called Teddy after her own father. But the marriage got worse. In August 1940, Lena left her kids with a neighbor and left her husband. She went to New York and struggled trying to find work as a singer or dancer. She eventually landed a gig with white band leader Charlie Barnett.
1: In this day and age, Charlie would be called a blue-eyed soul brother. He was a brilliant musician on the road with the band. Because of Charlie, they were very understanding. Uh, They let me, I had to stay in New York and they'd pay me when I couldn't tour south with them. They uh, would come out and sit in the bus with me on the road when we went places that didn't want me, a Negro girl, sitting up on the bandstand with those white men. And uh, they commiserated when I wouldn't be served in a restaurant and they walked out, you know, and, I had the strength, I think, to stay with him as long as I did, besides his being a great guy. I had had two babies, and I, I, I needed to work.
0: When Barnett booked a series of gigs in the South, he knew he couldn't take Lena with him, so he gave her a few weeks' worth of pay and told her to stay home for a while. Lena went back to Pittsburgh, where Lewis soon served her divorce papers, crying desertion. She managed to get him to give her custody of their daughter, Gail, but not their son, Teddy. So together, Lena and Gail moved to New York, into the house in Brooklyn which Lena's father had recently inherited from his mother. By the spring of 1941, Lena had landed the gig that she would later call the sweetest job I ever had, performing at Cafe Society downtown, Manhattan's first interracial cabaret. Cafe Society employed artists like Billie Holiday, Paul Robeson, and Zero Mostel, who performed for a crowd of mixed intellectuals, from Duke Ellington to Orson Welles. The place became synonymous with lefty anti-racism in the years leading up to the civil rights movement. Cafe Society's founder, Barney Josephson, policed this utopian space by enforcing a well-meaning version of censorship. Inside the doors of the club, No one was allowed to do anything that could be perceived as offensive to other races. So the waiters were instructed to eject any guest who used the N-word. But also, a young Carol Channing was fired for parroting the black singer Ethel Waters. Josephson noticed that Lena had adopted a kind of Latin rhythm to her stage presence, perhaps in an effort to obscure her actual racial identity. He encouraged her to drop the act, to try and figure out and embrace who she really was. But he also wanted her to try to sing the blues.
1: Loved very much Billie Holiday, we all did. And she was working around the corner. And uh, the management where uh, where I was said, you know, it would be very amusing if you'd sing a blues. You see, I don't really sing blues. Uh, uh, I love them, but... uh, So they said, nobody expects that a man is going to desert you and you're going to be mistreated. Look at the way you look, you know. So the audience will think it's very amusing if you sing a blues. And I was hurt and I went to Billy and I said, you know, they want me to sing a song that you sing so wonderfully and I don't understand it and I don't know how to sing it. And she gave me some wonderful advice. She she was a real sister. She said, you have two babies, you have to make a living. She said, I wear two hats, you wear as many hats as you have to, to create your life and pay your bills. And if they want you to sing that song, Sing it.
0: At the same time, Lena was developing friendships with Paul Robeson and NAACP head Walter White, both of whom encouraged her to look beyond her own needs and to start working towards making things better for black girls coming up behind her. In the early 1980s, Lena would inject aspects of her own autobiography into a spectacular stage show called Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music. In one of the spoken interludes in between songs in the show, Lena described what the Café Society had meant to her.
2: And at that time, Café Society was a gathering place for every giant that we had in jazz. For instance,
1: Teddy Wilson had the house band there. And he started out by trying to teach me how to carry a tune. He had a great trombone player named J.C. Higginbottom and a great drummer named J.C. Hurd. And then right around the corner from there, at a place called Nick's, was Nat Cole, with the first great trio from California. And then a little further on uptown at Kelly's Stables was my beautiful sister, Lady, Billie Holiday. And then a little further on uptown was my other beautiful sister, Hazel Scott. So you see, I was in the
2: cream of everything that is wonderful in my profession. And I let some
0: dude talk me into suddenly going the hall yes. in case you missed it due to the glitch in the archival audio. Lena left the Café Society to try her luck one more time in Hollywood, a place which had become so diseased for her by the early 1980s that in her show, she spits out its name in an exaggerated drawl of comic disgust and implies that she was duped into making the trip and thus leaving her real community behind. But back in 1942, Lena was excited to be invited to Los Angeles to join an all-black cabaret at a new club called The Trocadero. She had been hired to sing in a show built around Katherine Dunham, a dancer who had starred in a hit Broadway musical called Cabin in the Sky. Lena, at the time, saw the trip as a second chance to break into movies. Because she couldn't rent a house on her own as a single mother, let alone a black woman, The Trocadero's impresario, Felix Young, saw to it that a house was rented for Lena in another name. It took a while for her Hollywood Hills neighbors to catch on to who was really living in the house. And when they did, they didn't exactly give Lena a grand welcoming. Here she is explaining what happened in 1966.
1: Every time you let your barrier down and don't think like a Negro, you get... You know, and I had just let my guard slip a minute. And the next thing I knew, there was a petition being gotten up for me to get thrown out of the place. And uh, I uh, didn't realize that right across the street from us, And behind this wall, I'd hear these noises and all, and parties and everything, and people fighting. And I didn't realize that it was Humphrey Bogart and Mayo Metho, whom he used to be married to. The petition got just about so far, but when they got to Bogart, he said, Get your petition out of my face, and if you harm her or do anything to her, I'll have you all killed. (laughs) And that's the first time I realized, you know, and... uh, he absolutely threatened to punch them in the jaw, you know, and I didn't have any more problems.
0: Soon after arriving, Lena befriended Billy Strayhorn, an openly gay composer and arranger who would play the role of soulmate and advisor to Lena until his death in 1966. Billy and Lena were working together on arranging some songs for her first album and yet-to-open cabaret show on the morning of December 7th when the jazz radio station they were listening to suddenly broke in with an urgent bulletin. Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Almost immediately, afraid of potential acts of war, the city of Los Angeles banned gatherings of more than 100 people. The club where Lena had been scheduled to star in the cabaret was now unable to open, and the owner hastily leased a much smaller space. So it was at the very intimate Little Trocadero— that Lena Horne took the stage in January 1942 to sing two standards made famous by much stronger singers. The Man I Love, a Billie Holiday number, and the Torch song made famous by Ethel Waters, Stormy Weather. Fortuitously, the small club suited Lena's talents, and word started to spread around Hollywood about the new girl singer in town. One of Lena's early fans was Skitch Henderson, who happened to be a pianist at MGM, where he worked with Judy Garland and other stars in the studio's legendary musical unit. Henderson noted that, unlike the technically more skillful singers he was used to working with, Horn could improvise. She could make it seem like the emotions of the song were happening to her in the moment. He also noted that light-skinned Lena, quote, had a very white way about her. It was a sentiment echoed by screenwriter Arthur Lawrence, who praised Lena as, quote, "...the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. There was absolutely nothing Negro about her at all." Soon Henderson's boss, musical director Roger Edens, came to see Lena, and he told his boss, the head of MGM's musical unit, Arthur Freed, that he had to come check out Lena, too. At this time, Black actors and actresses simply were not being signed to proper studio contracts. In 1929, MGM had signed actress Nina Mae McKinney to a five-year deal, but only gave her a single starring role. In 1940, Hattie McDaniel had been the first African-American to win an Oscar for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind. McDaniel reasoned that it was better to play a maid than be one. But still, in 1942, most black performers were given opportunities that were more in the mold of step and fetch it, the ultimate stereotype of a black man as bumbling and dumb. That year, Paul Robeson declared that he was through with Hollywood until they showed an effort to change their racist ratios. And another of Lena's consciousness-raising mentors, Walter White of the NAACP, started actively petitioning the studios to cast black actors not just as idiots or servants, but also normal human beings. As it turned out, studio chiefs were receptive to these proposals because they had figured out that black people went to the movies in numbers large enough that it seemed like a profitable thing to try to please them. They wanted a star who they could sell to the black audience, who could also be acceptable to a white audience. Above all, they knew they needed a new type of star in order to sell the notion that Hollywood was changing its ways. And so Lena Horne was invited to come visit the MGM lot to sing for Louis B. Mayer himself. On January 31st, 1942, Lena Horne was signed to a contract with MGM which stipulated, as Motion Picture Magazine reported, that she would, quote, "...sing in pictures or play legitimate roles and not have to do illiterate comedy or portray a cook, roles customarily assigned to colored performers." It's become part of Lena's legend that her father, Teddy Horn, the smooth-talking gangster who had abandoned his daughter but had made an effort to rebuild their relationship when Lena was in her teens, personally warned Louis B. Mayer that since he could afford to hire his daughter a maid, MGM better not cast her as one. Lena told several different, even conflicting versions of this story over the course of her lifetime. Here's the version she told to Johnny Carson.
1: They sent for me to come to MGM. And it was a whole day like out of a storybook, you know. I was singing for L.B. Mayer and all the big wigs. And I went home that night and I called my father. I said, Dad, these people out here are crazy. They claim that they would like to put me in the movies. And, uh... I said, I think you better come out here and advise me. He flew out the next day and went with me to MGM and went to call on Mr. L.B. Mayer. And I think that's the first time he had ever noticed a sharp, beautiful dude dressed as you do and uh, very conservative. He said to Mr. Mayer, you know, my daughter is crazy. He said, uh, the only people that I've seen in the movies uh, that are her color Jungle people all in servitude and he said I got a lot of money and I will hire my own daughter's maids and uh, Sit her up nicely if that's what she wants and uh, He said I wouldn't like her to be demeaned and I think mr. Mayor swallowed a (coughs) a Frog and uh, just sat there. I mean that was unheard of
0: of all of the studios, MGM was the one that took the art of star-making the most seriously. Each of their performers, and especially their actresses, were given makeovers so as to better approximate goddesses in publicity photos and on screen. Having never given this treatment to a black actress before, at first the studio was unsure how to style Lena. Max Factor was put to work formulating a foundation makeup for Lena's face, which they named Light Egyptian. Light Egyptian. Otherwise, Lena's look was modeled after that of another MGM star, Hedy Lamarr, who up to that point was considered the most exotic beauty in Hollywood movies. In her first film, called Panama Hattie, Lena played a nightclub singer, and she performed two songs in segments directed by Vincent Minnelli. Minnelli had seen Lena sing at Cafe Society when he was in New York working on Broadway, and he was a fan of hers. But not everyone on set was happy to see her. When Lena reported to hair and makeup, the hairstylist refused to work on her hair, saying it was against union rules, which it wasn't. In the end, the head of MGM's styling department did Lena's hair himself, and Lena proved to be a small sensation in her two scenes. Audiences of Lena's own race swelled with pride over this image of a confident, sophisticated black woman on screen, and white audiences accepted her wholly, perhaps in part because the Panama setting opened up the possibility that Lena might be Spanish rather than black. But her next film didn't allow for such ambiguity. Cabin in the Sky would be Vincent Minnelli's feature film directorial debut, and Lena had a plum role in it as temptress Georgia Brown, the part originated on Broadway by Horn's cabaret co-star Catherine Denham. The film would be MGM's first all-black musical since 1929, and its making was a deliberate attempt on the part of the studio to appease the NAACP, If Lena was already a guinea pig, testing the idea of a fully glamorous black starlet, then her casting in Cabin in the Sky was like a test case within a test case. That said, Cabin in the Sky was full of mixed messages. On the one hand, it's a movie that takes certain aspects of its black characters' lives seriously, such as their faith, their sexual desires, and their sincere efforts to build a family in a decent home. Minnelli was determined to give this film the same glossy, glamorous look audiences were used to seeing in other, non-all-black MGM musicals, even though the budget for this film was capped way below the typical Judy Garland vehicle. In post-production, in order to enhance the film's painterly beauty and flatter the performers' skin tones, Minnelli had the print tinted sepia. For at least half a dozen great black stage and musical performers of the early 20th century, Cabin in the Sky would give them their most substantive screen roles of their careers. And Minelli did what he could to make sure the performers looked their best in this spotlight. And that was a pretty progressive attitude to have at the time when it came to a movie about the black working poor. But the characters were by no means stereotype-free. The film focused on the trials and travails of Joe, a loafish gambler married to Petunia, a mammy right out of central mammy casting— Petunia makes a deal with God to save Joe's life, but in exchange, the easily led Joe has to live a life of virtue, and the devil tempts him by sending into Joe's path Georgia Brown, a cabaret singer who persuasively advertises for a life of sin. Manelli and Horn had become extremely close, to the point that some believed they were having an affair, Whether they were sleeping together or not, Manelli doted on Lena, going as far as to adjust her grooming and costuming himself on set. This type of thing did not endear the director or the starlet to Ethel Waters, the great singer of the 20s and 30s who had been cast as Petunia, and in fact had rewritten her part herself to make the character both more dignified and more devoutly religious. By the time the cameras rolled on The Cabin in the Sky... Waters already hated Horn, who had started making her own the song that Waters had made famous, Stormy Weather. When Lena tripped and broke her ankle in the midst of a dance number, Waters smugly suggested it was divine punishment, saying, The Lord works in mysterious ways. Lena's injury necessitated that her single scene with Waters be reblocked, so that the starlet would be singing her song, Sitting Down. But that didn't do anything to get in the way of Lena's highly sensual impact in the film. Here's Lena as Georgia, singing a duet with Eddie Anderson's Joe, as the devil and Joe's guardian angel look on.
2: Life's full of consequence, but who's scared of consequence? Let's sip the honey while it's sweet. Could be messin' round, but you is digressing round While I'm tossing nature at your feet Why don't we mosey round? You could be cozy round the girl Who could sprinkle you with spice
0: most of this scene, Lena is laying back on a hammock, her blouse tied in a knot under her ribcage, exposing several inches of midriff above the top of her pencil skirt. And this was not the most suggestive scene shot for the film. Lena's original first scene in the movie had her singing the Harold Arlen song, Ain't That the Truth, while soaping herself in a bubble bath. This scene was shot according to the strict dictates of Joseph Breen's censorship office, and still the finished product was considered too sexy to fly. Lena didn't show more skin in her bathtub scene than her European equivalent Hedy Lamarr often would in a nightclub scene. But Lena would say later that just the idea of a naked black woman was too much for 1943, even without the bathtub scene. In Cabin in the Sky, Lena showed an image of black woman that hadn't been seen on screen before, confident and beautiful in a highly sophisticated, fashionable way. She became the first black woman in Hollywood movies who was depicted as an aspirational figure. Cabin in the Sky was a huge hit, grossing 40 times its reported budget. But because movie theaters were segregated, black audiences were forced to watch the film from balconies and theaters in the South wouldn't book it at all. Unsure of how to use Lena, MGM loaned her out to Fox for their attempt at an all-Black musical, Stormy Weather. Lena had already recorded the title song, as Ethel Waters well knew, but given the way Waters had treated her on the set of Cabin in the Sky, Lena was afraid to sing the song on screen. On the first few takes, her timidity was all too apparent. Cab Calloway, who was co-starring in the film, took Lena aside and gave her a rather harsh pep talk. This was her one chance, he told her. She was going to ruin it for everyone, he told her. Bitch, he said, you know what we've gone through. Think about somebody in your family that's died and sing the song. But maybe that was the problem. Lena's family had trained her, directly and indirectly, to keep her feelings to herself to never let anything or anyone break her facade. Still, something Calloway said got Lena mad enough to sing the song with real, palpable emotion. Stormy Weather the movie turned Stormy Weather into Lena's song, the de facto overture for the next 50 years' worth of concerts and talk show appearances, and the title of the only substantial biography written about her. do
2: in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I together Keeps raining all
0: But stormy weather was also a wake-up call for Lena. Her on-screen love interest in the film was tap dancer-slash-actor Bill Robinson, who was nearly three times Lena's age, and while a talented dancer, he hardly had the savoir-faire of Fred Astaire. In general, the black men who were regularly employed by the studios in the early 40s still specialized in regressive, offensive stereotypes. Lena realized that there weren't any black Errol Flynn's in Hollywood and there didn't seem to be any coming down the line. Essentially, there weren't any male equivalents to Lena Horn. And it was tough being a test case. Lena didn't fit in in Hollywood. When she tried to go to Hollywood parties where people who looked like her were more likely to be hired help than an invited guest, invariably someone made some kind of condescending comment or racist joke that made Lena understandably upset, causing her to storm off which endeared her to no one. And the black community in Hollywood saw Lena as haughty, uppity, an interloper, or worse, a cheater, who had gotten where she was on her beauty, or even worse, by sleeping with powerful white men like Vincent Minnelli. As Lena explained in 1966, actors who could only get work feeding terrible racial stereotypes were understandably resentful of the little bit better that she had it.
1: The uh, people there in Hollywood at that time, the Negro people particularly, who were in that kind of trap, um, had a right to resent me very much. And um, uh, on the other hand, uh, I certainly couldn't become a part of the Hollywood white uh, group. I was never allowed to act really with another white person in a scene. Uh, I was pinned to the pillar so I could be cut out of the scene if it went to places in the south where it couldn't be shown. So I was really uh, just sort of suspended in mid-air between the, uh, between the, the down on Central Avenue and out at MGM."
0: Lena started to feel resentful, too. She felt she was only in Hollywood to be a token so that MGM could have someone to point to when activists complained that they were otherwise completely cavalier about exploiting people of color. The production code through which Hollywood censored itself dictated that there be no implication of miscegenation on movie screens. So Lena could not be cast opposite white actors in any sort of film in which she was coded as desirable, and being coded as desirable was kind of her thing. Given all of that, the fact that MGM never hired a young, attractive Black actor to play opposite Lena in romantic movies seemed to be proof that they didn't want to make use of her. Shunned by the Black community, Lena often befriended gay men, and dated white men. Unbeknownst to most of her critics at this time, while on the cusp of movie stardom, Lena had a romance with Orson Welles, who had originally met Lena when he considered taking her to Brazil with him to shoot a jazz sequence for his aborted docudrama, It's All True. By some accounts, Lena was really in love with Orson and had hoped he'd marry her, which would have been a significant scandal to the extent that when Hedda Hopper got wind of the relationship, she threatened Welles to break it off Or else, the gossip columnist would personally see to it that his career went down the toilet. Of course, Orson Welles never needed any help getting in his own way in work or love. And by mid-1943, his relationship with Lena had fizzled out, and he had moved on to Rita Hayworth. And Lena moved on, too. In 1943, Lena shot parts in five films, all of them featuring primarily white casts. In most of them, her image and performance was shaped by Manelli, who would often step in to direct Lena's musical numbers on films credited to other directors. In all of them, Lena was presented as a kind of goddess who appeared, looking amazing, to sing a song or two, and then disappeared again. It was after a long shooting day on one of these films, I Doed It, that Lena agreed to go out for a drink with a Jewish pianist named Lenny Hayden, Lena hated Hayden at first. She had associated him with a racist boor who she had seen him with at a party, and she was aware that Hayden was the one person in the musicals unit at MGM who had avoided coming to see her cabaret shows. But that night, at a little out-of-the-way club, Lenny played the piano, and Lena sang along for hours. They started seeing each other regularly, but they had to be discreet. Often, Vincent Minnelli would come along on their dinner dates— so that gossip columnists wouldn't get wind of the new interracial relationship forming at MGM. With multiple films awaiting release, and lots of free time on her hands because MGM still couldn't find a leading role for her, in 1943, Lena kept herself busy with the war effort. She was in a unique situation. She was getting all of the publicity of a hot new starlet— But she didn't have the workload to match, so she could lend her starry aura almost full-time to performing on USO tours, and on radio broadcasts geared towards the troops, and at helping out at the Hollywood Canteen, which as you might remember from the first episode in this series, was in need of non-white girls to dance with non-white soldiers. MGM soon declared that Lena would be their Negro ambassador. In World War II, the military was segregated, so there were squadrons of young black men looking for the same comfort and distraction that the white soldiers craved. And Lena Horne was the only black starlet for African-American soldiers to idolize. Hers was the only Hollywood pinup that looked anything like them that they could put in their lockers. For soldiers of color, she was Rita Hayworth, Hedy Lamarr, and Jane Russell rolled into one, and her fame grew accordingly.
2: All the black men in the Second World War wrote to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and said, Thank you for giving us our own pin-up girl. We now can put a picture in our foot lockers. Because a lot of places where they were, they couldn't put Betty Grable's picture in there, see. But they were safe with my picture. So I'm, I, I'll admit to you. that the So they, they made my career.
0: She was deluged with fan mail from soldiers. She started appearing on radio shows aimed at both black and white troops.
1: Yes, man, it's Jubilee. Winging your way once more with some wallopin' wing ding that would make a wallaby jump in a kangaroo's pouch and say, Mama, you got a passenger. I got a jump tonight. And your pinup choice, the number one voice, Lena Horne. I'm so on that great big bundle of mail you got to answer. There has been quite a lot lately. And, fellas, I want you to know I appreciate it. Although I can't answer all your letters at once, I can dedicate a number to a few of you on this session, namely Private First Class Joe Phillips, Private Larry Nichols, Corporals Irving Gay, Harry B. Jones, and Merrill Ross, also Albert Avery Jr. of the Navy, Sergeant Dan Dilworth, and the windblown kids of APO 860. I hope you like Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea.
0: Lena made repeated visits to the Tuskegee Airfield to meet the U.S. military's first black pilots. Arriving in Alabama in February 1943, Horn had to wait for a connecting flight to Tuskegee. It was 3 a.m., and there was an all-night diner in the airport. Lena sat at the counter, and the waitress ignored her. Exhausted and freezing, Lena asked for a cup of coffee. The waitress refused to serve her. Too tired to argue, Lena got up to go. But then a boy ran out of the kitchen. Are you Lena Horn?" he asked. And then he asked her for an autograph.
1: State seems to give my heart a twist, and I back more. By Christmas 1944,
0: as Lena continued to tour Army bases to sing for the troops, segregation rules would be lifted temporarily so that she could perform for integrated crowds. And then one night in Arkansas, she looked out at the crowd and saw only white faces. After the show, she asked, what happened to the Negro soldiers? And she was told that the 50 or so black soldiers on the base hadn't been invited to her performance. The next day, she insisted on performing at breakfast in the Black Mess Hall. But as she was singing, she watched as some German prisoners of war were led into the room, Lena abruptly stopped the show, left the base, went straight to the local office of the NAACP, where a sympathetic activist arranged a ride back to Hollywood for Lena on a truck carrying a group of black soldiers out west. When she got home, Lena filed a complaint with the USO, who then scolded her for stepping out of line. From then on, for the rest of the war, Lena only performed for black soldiers, and she insisted on paying her own way. By the time the war was over, Lena Horne was one of the most beloved stars in Hollywood, of any race. But MGM still couldn't figure out how to give her more to do in any movie other than sing a single song in a single scene. In 1945, Lena filmed a segment from the musical Showboat for an omnibus musical full of Jerome Kern songs called Till the Clouds Roll By. The role of Julie in Showboat was a dream part for Lena. Julie was a very light-skinned black woman who passes as white to get along in late 19th century Mississippi. Until the clouds roll by, Lena was again directed by Vincent Manelli, singing a showstopper from the first act of the play called Can't Help Lovin' Dat Man. Lena thought of this segment as an on-camera audition for the role of Julie in MGM's inevitable showboat film. Home
2: without him No home to me can't help loving that man.
0: At the same time, another star-studded MGM Omnibus film, Ziegfeld Follies, was making news throughout the South, as one theater owner after another chose to excise Lena's single scene in the movie, a passionate rendition of a song called Love. Angry, paranoid, and so worn down by this life, as she put it, suspended in midair, Lena started to suspect that MGM was deliberately sabotaging her. In July 1946, at the very last minute, Lena backed out of a live Jerome Kern tribute concert. As a result, MGM didn't cast Lena in a film for two years. Fed up with Hollywood and increasingly motivated as a civil rights spokeswoman and activist... She started spending most of her time in New York, where she performed in nightclubs, regularly joined forces with Paul Robeson at rallies and speaking engagements, and started writing a column for People's Voice, a newspaper founded by Adam Clayton Powell. By 1947, Lena and Lenny Hayden had been dating for four years, and he had proposed multiple times. But interracial marriage was then illegal in California and accepted almost nowhere as Lena became more empowered as a voice for the black community, she worried what marrying a white man would do to her credibility as an activist, never mind her career as an actress singer By the fall of 1947, the pair were living together in a house in LA's Nichols Canyon, down the street from one of Lena's only actress friends, Ava Gardner. The couple had amassed around them a social circle of artists and semi-misfits who didn't care about race people around whom they could be themselves, Gardner, Jane Kelly, Andre Previn, Ira Gershwin, and Olivia de Havilland. And finally, when Lena embarked on a European tour, Lenny came with her, and they married in Paris. They kept the marriage secret from the public for three years. Towards the end of the 40s, Lena started to feel confident about her chances of advancement in Hollywood for the first time in years. There was a wave of movies about Black people forced to pass as white. All of which, such as Lost Boundaries, starring Cuban actor and future Audrey Hepburn husband Mel Ferrer as a Black doctor, cast non-Black actors as African Americans. But at least they started a conversation about racism and segregation— Lena hoped to improve on this trend by playing the lead role in a film called Pinky, about a light-skinned black woman who passes in an effort to become a nurse. Lena showed up at MGM, where she was still technically under contract, essentially being paid to not make movies, and she begged for the part. And they told her, no fucking way. She was too famous as the black movie star, they said. No one would believe that any of the other characters in the movie would believe that she was white. And so the part in Pinky was given to a new blonde starlet named Jean Crane, who was nominated for an Oscar for her performance in the film. And with that, Lena Horne started to become openly defiant. She went public with her marriage to Hayden and started even wearing a Star of David around her neck. And she offered her speaking services to progressive organizations all over the country. But she still held out hope that MGM would let her prove herself in the part she thought she was born to play, that of Julie in the film adaptation of Showboat. MGM started planning that film in 1949, during the final year of Lena's contract. The studio had strung Lena along for years, allowing her to sing in character as Julie until the clouds rolled by, and keeping her on the payroll without ever strenuously attempting to make more than token use of her. Now, they flat out told her that they refused to even consider her for the part of Julie. The reasoning was the same that lost her the part in Pinky. Lena Horne was too identifiably black to play a light skinned black woman who passed as white. Never mind the fact that the quality about her that got her on the MGM payroll to begin with was a beauty that, as we've seen, multiple observers praised for being not Negro at all or very white. The part instead went to one of Lena's best friends, her neighbor and frequent cocktail party buddy, Ava Gardner, a white Southern girl who couldn't sing. Here's Lena describing what that was like to Johnny Carson in 1982.
1: Ava and I sort of took to each other right away because uh, I know you know her, but everybody else might not. She is Southern. She is basic. She is down. She's laid back. And... She and I lived up in Nichols Canyon, and we both liked to drink uh, once in a while. Uh,
2: <laughs> Understandable.
1: <laughs> so I thought I was going to be this hot lady in showboat. I was going to be Julie. And uh, I was all prepared for it, and I cut the records and everything. And then I found out that I wouldn't be, of course. They so Ava them, right. had to practice moving her lips with my records that i'd made and every night she'd come in and we'd get loaded and she'd say i'm so sick of hearing you well, i don't know what to do but this is the way i'm gonna have to operate to make this job and i sort of said oh that's all right my young sister so what they did rather than use you at that time yeah they used ava gardner but they wanted to make her look like me so well they had invented invented a makeup for me to make me look more well, colored, as I said, that's a little something we used to call each other yeah. before we got straight, you know. Yeah. And anyway, so <laughs> they invented this makeup, and for some weird reason, they named it Light Egyptian. I think that's, you know, because I moved like this a lot. And uh, anyway, they took the Light Egyptian and they put it all over her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lena Horne would go through hell in the years between MGM and Johnny's Couch at NBC, But that's a story for another day. For today, we'll leave you with a segment of Lena's grand comeback, the event that occasioned her appearance on Carson and a whole comeback wave, her autobiographical concert, Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music. A televised version of the concert is on YouTube, and it's amazing. In it, the 60-something Lena Horne has a stage presence that's completely different from her MGM work, which was sexy, but often seemingly constrained. Even in her best on-screen performances, young Lena Horne seemed to be wound tight and slightly afraid. In much the same way that Judy Garland seemed to be in physical pain when she sang, which due to her health problems and addictions she probably often was, all of the invisible forces attempting to push Lena this way or pull her that way are visible on her body on-screen. But in The Lady and Her Music, old Lena Horne, who looks about 20 years younger than she is brings a lifetime of being told no to the stage. And she responds to all of this rejection with defiance. She comes off as fierce, frank, and funny. And she's certainly shaped which aspects of her autobiography she included in the stage show. Its overarching narrative is a triumphant one of a woman victimized by a system who found a way to make her voice heard, not least by embracing stormy weather as an anthem. But the way Lena delivers the material she convinces you that she's holding nothing back, that she doesn't give a fuck. It was the greatest performance of her career. I, I'm still finding uh,
2: things to, to think about when I, when I sing this. It's taken me a lot of years to grow into it. I... I walk around I am heavy hearted sometimes And I'm sad. And the night comes around And sometimes I am still feeling bad And the rain is pouring down, it is blinding every hope I ever had, and it's pittering and it's pattering and it's beating and it's spattering, drives me mad, drives me mad, I am thinking. Think about love. This misery is just too much for me. Oh. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Today's episode included many clips of Lena Horne herself. Please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, for show notes explaining the derivation of all these clips and more information about this episode and other episodes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and please rate and review us there also. And you can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. Don't forget that on our website, we also have a forum where you can suggest ideas for future episodes, start conversation with your fellow listeners, or ask questions that we'll do our best to answer as quickly as possible. That's at YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from The Secret and or Forgotten Histories, of Hollywood's first century. Good night.